0: Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, from the revelation to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sometime in the first decades of the 15th century, the Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev created one of the most famous icons the church has ever known. It's called simply the Trinity. And known by many in the Russian-speaking world as Troitsa. In the image, which you saw on on the screen, three figures are shown sitting around a table. In the background, a large house, a tree, and a mountain. On the table, a common cup. Two of the figures are shown blessing the cup, And all three figures are positioned such that their bodies form a complete circle. Each gazes into the eyes of another, tilting his his head in a gesture of reverence. And the viewer of the icon finds herself locked in this pattern of infinite movement as she follows the gaze of one to the other, the second to the third, back to the first, and so on. And the icon depicts this community of persons gathered in love and adoration, sharing the fellowship and communion of a simple meal. Of course, Rublev's icon does not claim to depict the Blessed Trinity directly. The image is, in fact, not one of God, but of a reflection of the divine life in the order of creation. The image actually depicts that strange and mysterious event in Genesis 18 often called the hospitality of Abraham where Abraham sitting outside his home next to the oak of Mamre and Mount Moriah in the distance receives three visitors. In the following chapter it is made clear that these three men are divine visitors, angelic beings sent from God but in the moment this is all concealed from Abraham He simply receives these three figures as strangers, bows to them in reverence, feeds them, refreshes them, and then receives from them a word of blessing. Sarah, his wife, barren and old, shall bear a child. Now from very early on in the Christian tradition, this story of Abraham's hospitality to the three angelic visitors was taken to be suggestive of the Holy Trinity not just suggestive. In fact, many of the church fathers understood this moment in the biblical drama to be a theophany, an indirect appearance of the invisible God in visible form. As Augustine would write, he would say this, we should see here as visibly intimated by the visible creature, the equality of the trinity, and one and the same substance in three persons. Rublev picks up on that ancient Christian tradition. He depicts the transcendent, glorious trinity indirectly through the communion of these three angelic visitors. Rublev's icon of the trinity has become, for many people, a window into the deep life of the triune God, One gazes at the icon and enters into this life in all its intimacy and communion. So the icon appears in countless churches and homes, mine included, throughout the world as a reminder that the very nature, the being of the God who saves us is one of Trinitarian love and friendship. The Holy Trinity made visible so as to be loved, worshipped and adored now rublev's original icon the prototype of the many copies of it which would follow is actually still existent but do you know where it is housed not in a church not in a monastery not in fact anywhere where it could be venerated or prayed with or used in worship rublev's icon sits behind thick glass in the state Trechikov gallery in Mosto, Moscow. It sees around a million visitors annually who observe it, view it as a kind of artistic masterpiece, comment and remark upon its features, and maybe even contemplate its aesthetic genius and accomplishment. But here, the icon is not venerated. It's not bowed before, not kissed, It receives none of the traditional actions and gestures made toward holy icons. It has instead become a spectacle, a distant object. Well, this morning, on this feast of the Holy Trinity, Trinity Sunday, I worry. I worry that many Christians have come to approach the doctrine of the Trinity much like Rublev's icon. I worry that the Trinity has become an enigma, no doubt profound to those who can comprehend it, but ultimately a kind of esoteric idea reserved for the more intellectual types. That is, I fear the Trinity has become a doctrine that we might give credence to, perhaps even think is important in some kind of abstract sense, but which is in the end, rather irrelevant to our ordinary lives of prayer and worship and life. The Trinity has become, for many, just like Rublev's icon, an interesting object, no doubt, to be viewed from afar, but never touched, never kissed, never loved. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not fundamentally a concept to be grasped. It stands at the heart of the Christian life, rather, as a mystery to be contemplated in love in order to bring us to worship and praise, in order ultimately to bring us to our eternal destiny, friendship with God. This is why St. Augustine, in the introduction to what's no doubt the, the seminal text of Christian Trinitarian theology, which is this complex and sophisticated work of biblical exegesis and speculative metaphysics, it's why he begins that book on the Trinity with a very simple prayer. It goes something like this, I summarize. I love you, Lord, but I want to love you more. And the only way to love you more is to know you more. But the most fundamental, most basic thing about you, O God, is that you are triune, Trinity, eternally three, eternally one. And so it seems, this is the daunting reality, that to love you more demands that I know and contemplate evermore the beauty of your triune life. Now, as Augustine proceeds to delineate that mystery of the Trinity in that book, he shows us just how central the Trinity is to the Christian life. The destiny of all creatures, Augustine shows, is to enter into that divine life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist in perfect harmony and communion of love and self-giving. This, in fact, is heaven, Augustine says to live in God's Trinitarian love. But not only is the Trinity the end or goal of the Christian life, Augustine says, it's also the way there. The way to this eternal life in God is one of evermore in this life being united to God's Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to delight in love and praise of the Father. So this morning, I want to follow Augustine's lead a little bit and say a few words about this mystery of the Holy Trinity, which we celebrate this day. So first, a word on the Trinity, to steal from Augustine's title, and then a word on the Christian life as a movement into the Trinity. Well, what is the Trinity anyway? the best way to understand the doctrine of the trinity is to consider it not as a kind of metaphysical riddle but rather as an answer to a very practical dilemma that arose in the very earliest forms of christian worship remember many most of those first christians were devout followers of judaism a religion in which perhaps the most central theological conviction is that God is one, monotheism. There is one God, and worship of anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. And yet, these devout men and women, followers of Judaism, found themselves worshiping a man named Jesus, a human being who, on the one hand, claimed to be God— the God of Israel, Yahweh, in the flesh, and thus deserving of the same praise and worship as the one true God. And on the other hand, this God-man was always speaking about his Father, a person distinct from him, the Son of God, even if profoundly related to him. And on top of all of this, this God-man Jesus also spoke of a Holy Spirit, A person who seemed to be different from both the Father and the Son, and yet so united and intimate with them that this spirit also somehow seemed to be God. And so the earliest Christian prayers and liturgies were shaped around the worship of these three persons, even as Christians continued to proclaim with their Jewish brothers and sisters, there is only one God. So what's the deal? It did not take long before many outsiders to the Christian church began to point out the problem. Christians can't do math, apparently. How can you say you worship one God when you consistently pray to and praise three names? Indeed, many insiders in the church felt the difficulty of this paradox. Maybe you do today. One which threatens to be even a complete contradiction in terms. It would not work for these Christians simply to say that these were three names for the same thing. That failed to reckon with the biblical accounts of these three persons interacting with one another, like what we heard from the Gospel of St. John this morning. In the New Testament, the Gospels, the Son prays to the Father, the Spirit descends upon the Son, the Father is glorified in the Son but neither would it work to say that these were three divine beings that together made up the Christian God, three parts of a whole. And finally, neither were these early Christians satisfied with simply throwing up their hands and saying, well, God is one and three, and we don't know how, and usually one plus one plus one equals three, but not in this case God is a logical contradiction or something like this. No, because if God is truth and God reveals God to us, God wants us to know, to understand who God is. So it was worship, in other words, that provoked for early Christians a deep question. How is it that we can worship three persons and yet say there is one God? Well, over the course of several centuries, the church began to work out in ever more detail an answer to that question. It's a quite dramatic and interesting story involving many heroes like Alexander and Athanasius and Augustine, as well as villains too, like Arius and Eunomius. It's a story that centers on doctrinal councils and political conflicts. And at the end of the day, what the church developed was a set of creedal affirmations, we'll recite one of them shortly, and explanatory theological treatises that center on this simple, deceptively so, but profound claim that God is one substance or being in three persons. One substance in three persons. In other words, there is no aspect of divinity that the Father is or has that the Son and the Spirit do not also share, or vice versa. Each person is fully and completely God because there is only one divine substance, but just because there is this identity between Father, Son, and Spirit, all are God, this does not preclude there being difference or distinction in God. This one divine being is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now to understand what in the world that could possibly mean, we have to pause for a moment and think about the names of these divine persons. Because note what these names are and are not. They're not really proper names, Billy, Bob, and Jerry so much as names that designate relationships. These are relational names. And this is because the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, simply are relations. To use a $10 theological term that you can throw out at your next dinner party, the Trinity, these persons, are subsisting relations in the Godhead. Which is to say this, we creatures, we really only know and understand what it means for there to be relations between beings, between numerically distinct things. I can have a relationship with you. But God does not have relations. God is relation itself. God's very being is is a dynamic movement of relation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while this may seem conceptually heavy, it's really just a different way of saying what St. John famously wrote that God is love. Not love as a kind of abstract concept or principle, not love as a sentimental signifier. God is love because God's very being, God's essence, is a perfect and eternal communion of persons giving and receiving themselves in in a divine dance of mutual love and indwelling. But here's the kicker. The goal of salvation, the end to which all creation is destined, is to be welcomed into this relationship, this communion, Of divine love. Salvation is nothing less than a movement into the Trinity, the very life and being of God. It's what actually began already at your baptism. Remember, you were united to Christ, the Son of God, in baptism, bound to him and made to share in his very sonship to the Father. You were adopted into his sonship so that you could be a child of God. You received the Holy Spirit in baptism, which is to say that a person of the Holy Trinity now dwells in you so that you may dwell in God. In the Holy Eucharist, the Son of God gives us his very self, his body and blood, soul and divinity, so that we receiving him, ingesting him, in the power of the Holy Spirit, may be evermore united to him and drawn up into the eternal love of the Trinity. What I'm saying is this. The Christian life, the life of prayer, worship, Sacraments, mission, service, discipleship, it is all a movement into the Trinity. It is coming to participate in the very relations of love and mutuality and communion that is the being of God. One of my old professors, who was a, a theologian who specialized, among other things, in the doctrine of the Trinity, He would sometimes tell the story of a good friend of his who, noticing how seemingly obsessed this professor was with what appeared to him to be a kind of irrelevant, technical, and obscure metaphysical concept, he remarked one day, "Eduardo, you are really into the Trinity. To which he responded, yes, I find it fascinating But in fact, that's just the entire goal of creation, of human life, to get into the Trinity in a real sense. Friends, our destiny as members of Christ's body is nothing less, and do not settle for anything less, than a full participation in the very being of God. Our purpose, our end, our goal The telos of our whole being is to get into the Trinity, to share, to participate in the everlasting love, which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.